once you work at a club with zero to no budget, you have to be creative. So, you know, the first minds at Spring is uh, John Lifeham, XL Trickster Sports, and, uh, Adam Virgil. So they're, they're the guys that, you know, watching numerous, numerous YouTube videos to, okay, how can I get an athlete monitoring uh, system up in up in place to, to help with the athletes that I have. Um, and also planning on a worst case scenario that if your infrastructure or your, your, your systems that you're using in club fail, what can you use that is going to be, make sure that the processes ticks over seamlessly. So even collecting wellness, for example. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. The podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about the hybrid strength and conditioning coach. It's also about conditioning and rehabbing a hamstring strain. But we start off with the hybrid S&C coach. And this is Jermaine McCubbin, who's spoken a lot about this on LinkedIn and on, on, on his social media accounts and presentations as well. And it's how strength and conditioning coaches prepare themselves for the ever-changing world in which they operate. So it's not only a role that is confined to the gym anymore. You're expected to do conditioning in the name. Obviously, you're expected to do conditioning, data analysis, um, rehabilitation, lots of different things. So Jermaine takes us through how he got to PSV Eindhoven as an English person, which I think is super impressive working abroad who speak a different language uh, and settling and all that kind of thing. So the high breast and C coach. Then we have a little chat around conditioning and small-sided games and how he conditions his players, especially the ones that aren't playing 90 minutes every week and what methods he uses to do that. Then we have the second half of the episode to deal with how an SNC coach deals with a the rehab, a hamstring injury. So super, super interesting episode with Jermaine. Delighted to get him on and can't wait to get it out there. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Rewire Fitness. While we all know it's important to develop athletes' mental skills, it's often challenging for coaches to figure out how to apply these strategies. The Rewire Fitness is the ultimate coaching solution for helping athletes develop their mental fitness and gain an advantage over competition. The platform integrates evidence-based tools backed by neuroscience and sports psychology, as well as protocols used by NASA and the Navy SEALs to help athletes enhance mental performance and improve readiness, recovery, and resilience. With daily insights into each athlete's readiness, you can identify trends, prevent overtraining, and make informed recommendations with ease, resulting in improved team performance. And they have the data to back it up. Typically, their users reduce their self-related stress by 70%, feel 30% more focused, and feel 30% more ready for performance with just five to 10 minutes of use each day. By implementing Rewire in your coaching practice, you can also support a culture of health and wellness proactively working to prevent athlete burnout and overtraining. Prioritizing mental wellness and performance is key to success of any team, and Rewire Fitness is the solution to achieve it. Learn more and schedule a demo at rewirefitness.app forward slash Pacey. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics 
and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kidman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. So without further ado, over to the episode with Jermaine. Jermaine McCubbin, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for the invitation to come on, Rob. Really appreciate it. No, thank you, mate. It's um, it's a pleasure to have you. And one of the main reasons, there's loads of reasons that I wanted to get you on, but one reason that really catches me is the fact that you've obviously been over here and then you've gone abroad into Europe. Not, you haven't gone to America, you haven't gone to Australia, but you've gone to a non-English speaking country, which I think is firstly super brave. And the fact that you've gone there and made a success of it because you've you've stayed there um, relatively long term. So yeah, I'm fascinated to get you on and have a little chat about some intricacies of what you do, but also kind of life life overseas as a English SNC coach. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, absolute pleasure, Rob. Like I said, it's a real privilege to be asked to come on, so uh, thank you. No, thanks, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a short bio, ending with how you ended up at PSV? Yeah, no problem at all. So uh, firstly, I done, uh, of course, went through the whole uni route and actually wanted to be a physiotherapist. Uh, so my current position, I'm first team strength conditioning coach at PSV. Um so I, in back in 2008, I graduated with um, sports therapy and injury rehabilitation degree. Um, and then after that, I yeah went into some personal training, couldn't get a job uh, trying to find employment as a, a sports therapist because it was very difficult because everyone in the footballing world wanted to hire physios. So it was yeah very difficult to get your foot in the door. Um, so I was personal training at... David Lloyd's, I believe, at the, at the time, for a number of years. And then, um, yeah, I was pretty much doing the usual, contacting everyone, sending CVs out uh, here, there, and everywhere. And managed to get my foot in the door at Brentford as a, um, a casual sports therapist. And then from there, it was, okay, see the guys in the S&C department, in the gym, and, okay, what was this? Um, made some good good contacts and it was yeah well, we do strength and conditioning that was the first time I heard that term so it was like okay I can combine my sports therapy injury rehab side of things along with the personal training it's like kind of a yeah a bit more of a complete package in my eyes um so then I started my UKCA journey um from there became accredited um then done my master's degree after that, at Middlesex with uh, Anthony Turner and Chris Bishop. So that was... Uh, That's the last time you mentioned them two on here. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. I've been paid to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was... Um, yeah, done my Masters, had my UKCA. Then, um, of course, still being at Brentford at the time, uh, they closed down the academy. So I was part of that. 
whole process of, okay, I had a foot in the door, now I have to find employment. So from here, I then uh, the, spoke with the technical director. He was uh, good enough to put me in contact with the technical director at Arsenal and, um, yeah, had an interview. And at the point in time, she was looking for a sports therapist and an SNC coach with UKSA accreditation. So it was, listen, she, she pretty much said, if I, if I can hire you, I can uh, kill two birds with one stone. And I don't have the budget so to pay two people, but I can pay you one and a half times as much. And yeah, you can, uh, uh, and we can develop from there, which I did. Um, stayed at Arsenal for, for a number of, number of years, number of seasons, uh, predominantly starting in the youth. Um, so the Arsenal women's pathway, so starting within the youth academy, setting up some infrastructure within there, um, and then working my way up to first team, and then, yeah, most recently transitioning over to to Holland. So it was it was a point of I had um, sent my CV. So was, my wife actually gave birth, and from a family perspective, it was okay. She's um, was born in Holland, raised in Eindhoven. So having the little one and no real family connections over here, it was a bit more, okay, let's go over there. There was more infrastructure, more family. I've been coming to Eindhoven for 10 years, so let me see if I can you know, make something work over there. And I went down and sent my CV to uh, clubs within Belgium, Holland, and uh, Germany, so within a 125-kilometer uh, radius of me knowing I wanted to stay in Eindhoven. And then from there, yeah, I think 15 clubs I contacted, um, three or four people within each organization, and, yeah, didn't hear anything back uh, immediately. And then, yeah, randomly got a call uh, a few months later saying there was an opportunity at PSV and would I be interested. And naturally jumped at the chance to, to interview uh, came over, see the staff, the infrastructure. I had a, a good meeting with the technical director at the time and the performance director. Was offered the role on a on a Thursday, and they asked if I can start on a Monday. <laughs> and it was like, uh, yeah, I have to of course move country, but um, yeah, we, we we made it work after that. And yeah, that was uh, just over three years ago now. So into my fourth fourth season. See, wife's Dutch. My wife is Danish, wife's but she Dutch. was uh, yeah born born over here. Uh, Mum and dad were working over here um, yeah, many moons ago. So uh, that was the connection from here. So you weren't in Eindhoven when you were applying for the job, but did you make it, no. did you make it super clear that, like, we're going to be there? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be in we, we, Yeah. I'm going to be close. Yeah. So it was, it was yeah, I want to I wanna be based in Eindhoven. And, we'll, and I, you know, being from London, I was, yeah, traveling for work was, was never an issue for me. So it was always... You know, whether you're doing uh, private clients or traveling to and from Arsenal from where I was, which was St. Albans, would still take you one and a half hour on the, on the M25. So traveling was never going to be an issue for me. Um, yeah, so I set that radius of what I thought was uh, going to be applicable uh, or feasible. And yeah, just fortunate enough, I got the club that we was uh, closest to home. Good stuff. I mean, when people have asked me, I mean, I have no experience of, of working abroad, but plenty of speaking, speaking to plenty of people that have. And I think the thing that comes across is that you've got to be on the ground. You've got to be there. Oh, it's so much easier if you're there applying for a job in the from the if you're from the UK into the US. It's super tough. But if you're in the US and you've got a base 
and you're committed to be there, that makes things so much easier. I know you didn't quite do that, but you made it clear that that was gonna that was gonna yeah. happen. Yeah, I, I think I got quite, quite fortunate in terms of the the SNC coach. So I went over as a U23s um, SNC coach, um, then I was promoted to lead academy for two seasons, and then yeah, worked with uh, Rude for one one season. Then when he got promoted, he took me with him to first team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is Ruben. Ruben Okay, yep, cool. So, um, the the guy that was in my position at uh, the U23s was actually an English guy as well, who's now at uh, FC Twente. But so whether it was a connection of, okay, we had an English guy who was, maybe it was his way of working, his full process philosophies, and it kind of maybe set precedent and a little bit of a foundation to, oh, they have my CV on file. Um well, my the, the experience that I had and coming from England, maybe that was a little bit more advantageous than some other people that were applying. Interesting. Good work. Right, well, I think, and, then, and the, like I said at the start, the thing that, or another thing that attracted me to having you on the podcast was this kind of hybrid that I knew of your background coming up as a therapist and then obviously transitioning to S&C, but still bringing that therapy experience and, and mindset into things. I think that's a you've probably gone about it in a really intelligent way, maybe without realizing that you kind of combine these two skill skill sets. And I had a guy on the podcast last week called Nick Kane, who runs the sports map network from Australia, head, uh, head physio at Essendon in AFL. And we were talking about this kind of merger of this late stage rehab gray area where the physios are trying to look to the SNCs to get that experience of, of, of that area. And you've got the SNCs who are looking the other way and going, I've got no formal education in this area, but I'm looking to the, the expert physios who have made that transition into that area. And it's kind of this merger, this gray area merger. Have you found that you've, you've got opportunities and found a real niche in that particular gray area, just made it by chance or whether it by yeah. design? No, it's, uh, I mean, when I was at the U23s, it was, um, yeah, the, it's always going to be dependent on the staff and then the infrastructure that you have in place will depend on or dictate how much um, or how early you need to get involved in the rehab process. Um, you know, for me, I'm very, in my full process, very uh, confident and competent to deliver, you know, or take a player from uh, um, acute phase all the way through return to train, return to play, to return to competition. So for me, I had, um, you know, no no worries or concerns. I can do that with, you know, soft tissue injuries. Okay, taking someone with an ACL um, or who's had meniscus injuries, a little bit more complex and you might get a little bit involved later on. But it completely comes down to the uh, the infrastructure. So if you've got one one physio, one SNC coach and you've got five, six injuries, then, you know, to relieve strain on the department, or on your colleague, okay, you're going to have to get in a support. How can you be able uh, add, add some value and help him out to make sure that the quality of the programs are still being, uh, uh, the quality of the programs that are delivered are still quality, rather than everyone gets a wishy-washy um, re- rehab and then there's a reoccurrence and then you're back into the cycle. Um, so having having that blended learning, you know, really gave me the uh, the opportunity to, get involved and have better and greater conversations to develop something further. And let's be honest, the mo- mo- if you're lucky enough to work in pro sport, the majority of people 
will be in those kind of environments where you've got one and one, or you've got one and two, or two and one. There's not many people who look enough to have a full department and you can have a real niche. Like the SNC is predominantly going to be mucking in to do return to play stuff. And like you say, where, wherever you pitch yourself, depending on the structure of the department, you're going to be involved in the process. And the majority of the time, you're probably an exception, but majority of the time you learn on the job. You learn the job, you're learning. Yeah, no, I definitely felt that even, even for myself, because even though once I graduated, even though I had um, some background in it, moving away into SNC uh, or doing personal training for a number of years and then coming back into SNC and having that, it was um, yeah, a, a, real, a real challenge to get back into it and be more involved in, on, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, because okay, in the youth you would you would deal with Osgoods um, uh, or Severs, and there wasn't really an, an influx of soft tissue injuries. But the higher you go, the more injuries start to present themselves, you know. So it, it was it was an interesting contrast. Um, but I, I had a real thirst for knowledge from the physio side of things, and, and that's why I went. Um, even though I had my degree, I, I done I went and done the FIFA diploma and. Um, football medicine just to get a great understanding into their thought processes and what they might be doing in 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 an acute phase um, to help me rehab the player further. And we'll get on to a specific rehab uh, a little bit later but I can't remember, well I don't know where the slide came from that I found on Twitter about the hybrid S&C coach was that from a presentation or was that from a paper? Yeah, that was, it was, I had a, um, a good conversation with a, you know, I, I love to, to network and put some, some stuff out on LinkedIn, um, more, more present on it this year than I have been uh, previously. And um, a coach from FC Utrecht, uh, which is, a, which is an, another club in the premiership in Holland, he had contacted me, just asked for, to have a conversation. Um, and for me, I'm very open for that. So we had a nice chat and, you know, the, the, the topic came up, generalizing, be specializing. And yeah, it just got me thinking, you know, maybe I should put something on paper just to share for any up and coming or aspiring practitioners um, that might, you know, help guide them in the, in the right direction. You know, I must, I must say that the, the, the content I put out was, was an adapted version from some, some, uh, smarter practitioners than me um so yeah i just added my thoughts thoughts onto it a little bit more to bring a little bit more up to date with some rehab and return to play aspects on it yeah i mean that that we've spoken about the return to play and kind of upskilling in that gray area that seems to be between the snc and the physio but one other thing that was on there that always catches my eye and i think it's only going to get bigger is the data analysis side of things whether it's learning a programming language or it's just understanding terminology within that, so you can, you know, converse with people that are more better or more well versed in that in that particular area. But how have you gone about that? Have you got have you got any gone down any route to upskill or become more confident? Yeah, so I mean, once 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 you work at a club with zero to no budget, you have to be creative. So. You know, the first minds at spring is uh, John Lifeham, XL Tricks for Sports, and, uh, Adam Virgil. So they're, they're the guys that, you know, watching numerous, numerous YouTube videos to 
okay, how can I get an athlete monitoring uh, system up in, up in place to, to help with the athletes that I have? Um, and also planning on a worst case scenario that if your infrastructure or your, your, your systems that you're using in club fail, what can you use that is going to be make sure that the process just ticks over seamlessly? So even collecting wellness, for example, um, yeah, have something in Google Sheets to, to send on a WhatsApp to all players that you're not missing any key crucial information. So the athlete, yeah, the athlete monitoring side of things, those YouTube videos were, you know, extremely influential in those early days. And give you a little bit more uh, clarity and context of how to develop and read and interpret um, some of the information that's out there. You know, because ultimately it's about player care, and if we can we can help and support by putting these systems in place, then yeah, you're on you're onto something. Because obviously the the cost of some of these athlete monitoring systems are, are huge, but sometimes the fundamentals are or all the basics. Um, are huge and you know, can really help you on your way. I think it's another area that is just going to get bigger and bigger for people like yourself, SNC coaches, sports scientists, rehab, physio, who need to be well-versed in these particular areas because there'll be people in the department who are going to have those conversations and rather than nodding along stupidly like I do a lot of the time speaking to people on the podcast, you've got to, you've got to understand the, this language. And I think... Um, yeah, it's only going to get bigger. And another way to differentiate, I think Dan Howells had put something on maybe LinkedIn or Twitter the other day about differentiating yourself. I think this is a super, not an easy area, but a, a really interesting area to be able to do that. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like you want to have great conversations with uh, technical staff, other performance staff, sports scientists, nutrition. So you want to be, have a, able to have a, a seat at the table where you can converse with everyone. But the, the key thing is, you know, with the athlete monitoring and, and data analysis visualization is, you know, asking the right questions to get the appropriate outcomes. So if you, if you do some testing, for example, um, you want to make sure that the athlete monitoring system you've got in place, what you're reporting back to a player is adequate. So if we're looking at, um, Comparing players, we might use, for example, uh, some bar charts. If you're looking at looking at trends over time, you have um, your line graphs. If you want to make some uh, comparisons, um, uh, look at relationships. Sorry, you're going to have scatter graphs. If you if you're going to have um, look at distributions, um, you're going to have uh, some box plots. If you want to compare performance versus an attained goal, you might have some bullet charts. It, it's you know so uh, or and then going deeper, looking at some bubble charts or, or quadrants, and you know, so having an understanding about this, because we we are working with with the player. We from an SNC point, okay, this is what I would like to see. How can we put that in place from a visual uh, to make my my job actually easier to answer the questions that I have, and then re relaying that back to the uh, the player so it's clear and, and concise, so to ultimately save you more time do the things that we, we want to do so one thing that i want to move on to and i think this is even more interesting because of where you're based and the kind of players that you're dealing with and the club that you're based at and that's conditioning and reconditioning players through small-sided games and through uh, other means uh, not small-sided games obviously holland 
is well known for its style of football and has influenced what goes on here in the UK and what goes on all over the world. And I'm just interested how the club, the club philosophy, your philosophy, whether that's changed over time and been in the kind of environment that you're, that you're based in, how you're conditioning players and whether it is small-sided game-based. If it's not, if it's not, what is it? If it's a combination of the, the two, I'm, I'm super interested to get you get your insights yeah no, so it's it's um obviously you have your different phases of the season and of course you have the uh, head coach's game model how we would like to play from a technical tactical standpoint and you know what he would require from a um, physical point of view from our players so you know how we're going to press how you're going to defend what what you want to see you know ultimately your guys do um of course our function is to give the head coach um, every single player who can who can deliver uh, the technical and tactical demands with minimal decrement or drop off in performance. So you know that's that's clear. Once we're in a, a preseason, then there's going to be a little bit more of a shift between off ball conditioning. So your uh, your aer- aerobic, anaerobic, uh, repeated sprint, this type of work to ensure that everyone has a specific baseline relative to what they may do within a game. Um, and then as you slowly get closer towards the in-season, you, you're following more of a game model where it's infused within the technical, tactical and within a footballing way. Because if you, if you, look, at, if you look at the game, okay, a football, 11 v 11, um, 325 metres squared on the pitch, but if you break it down further, it's just a series of small and mid-sided games all over the pitch. So there's 2v2s, 3v2s, 4v2s, 4v1s, all, all over the pitch, you know, and, and predominantly in more small mid-games. And then once it gets a little bit larger, the players are more shifting, covering and, and taking up position to make sure there's no runs in behind or um, how to set up the, the formation to press or, or defend. So... Knowing that, you essentially want to train as you play and play as you train. Um, so if we can disguise as much of the, the running drills within a footballing way, then that's going to be advantageous. Because the big question always comes, what can you um, not do physiologically? Um, let, me, let me phrase this right. Is, um, Physiologically, what can you do um, with the ball that you can't do without the ball? You know, so knowing that it's very hard to say, yeah, you get this, this or this. You know, so the 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 only thing that I can kind of land on at the moment is okay. Physiologically, um, you can get similar adaptations. Um, but in a more fun and enjoyable way that adds more relationship to the game, um, which can you know drive intensity, ensure that players are you know well well tuned technically and tactically. But from a um, a performance standpoint, it's still going to be imperative to do specific runs without the ball to ensure that of course everyone is meeting their um, max velocity demands. Because we see that even within a game on an 11 v 11 big pitch that sometimes players don't hit over a 90-minute game. And if, if you just didn't monitor that, you would see that over time, 
it could be three, four, five games before someone, you know, could get some exposure. So we, we can't afford to rely on that from a performance uh, and injury prevention and performance enhancement standpoint. And also, if you only play those small, mid, large-sided games in a training environment without doing the runs, you might neglect um, some of the deceleration demands or the high-end high, high end, uh, frequency and magnitude demands that you might get. So, uh, for example, if you do a 35-40 meter sprint with a turning point, you're going to be satisfied that, okay, you've met at a high entry speed with uh, a re-acceleration, whereas if you only played small-sided games, okay, the frequency is high, but sometimes the, the, the magnitude or the density is not going to be high enough. That's really interesting that you mentioned deceleration because we had Damien Harper over at the, the Speed Conference a, a couple of weeks ago. And it's interesting that, like you did there, just that thought process is in people's minds more to look at, to, to, to quantify and to tick off that, okay, we've done some deceleration work rather than, and this might bring me on nicely to the, the top-ups after games. Traditionally, it might be box-to-boxes, but again not can that don't particularly cover the deceleration demands of what the lads who've played or the girls that have played have been exposed to so it's really interesting that that's now coming more into the process the thought process of you guys in the field because maybe because of the work that's gone on from Damien and others that has kind of highlighted it and become more kind of front and center yeah Damien is definitely someone uh who you know, in any any content that he puts out, I'm definitely reading. Uh, the same with uh, Tom Dos Santos. Um, you know, very very good guys that are putting more content out because deceleration is, yeah, it's it's one of those things that is starting to take off and be researched and looked into a lot more because it's such an important part of the game. And if you're not prepared for these high, uh, you know, for, the game is getting faster. So if the game gets faster, that means we need to have break harder you know so those turning demands are going to increase as a result so if we don't have the physical capabilities to cope with these uh, demands then players will unfortunately sustain soft tissue type injuries um you know knees uh um, patellas ligaments all everything is susceptible if the brakes are not good you know with that that good old analogy you can have a ferrari and you can drive fast but if you don't know how to brake and how to control the car, yeah, you're 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 predisposing yourself to some negative consequences. So what can we do as practitioners to ensure that um, you've got all the hardware and all the uh, the mechanics and the exposure at both small sided games, high entry speeds to combat? Is that this? something again looking at the lads that don't play uh, on the Saturday or the or the or the midweek game? Is that something that you're consciously thinking about, okay, well, yes, we can do the pitch runs after the game, but that's not ticking the deceleration box. Is that something that you try to do consciously to get those exposures? Yeah, so we'll, we, would always, we would always manipulate, okay, you have to look at your game schedule. Um, we've just come off the back of playing uh, European football and on the weekend since yeah, pretty much the beginning of uh, uh, the season. So it's only this week that we've had... Uh, so the last two weeks that we've had a one-game week, which is quite bizarre, uh, or, or to experience this for the first time, is um, yeah, very, it's very cool. But from a, a a conditioning point of view, it's yeah, there's there's more puzzles in a two-game week because you've got 
your fixed team, your, your starting eleven, and then those those players which are coming in and out and are on the fringes. Um, the good thing about the the post match top ups, um, okay, you do them to make sure you okay from a high speed running uh, perspective, you know, tissue tolerance can be handled, but not every groundsman is going to let you do ch change of direction type rules, you know, or you get an allocated amount of time before the floodlights go out, you know, or, or the sprinkler is going to come and you know, there's there's ways that they can get you off the field. It's so cute. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if we if we can combat and actually do some of the high speed running stuff after the game, but then you know the plus one, um, the substitutes will go into a training environment where they will. It might be biased towards playing small-sided games or some repeated sprint ability where we're getting high magnitude and high frequency Axel D cells. So we can we can afford to you know keep your high days high and your low days low. So really give them a conditioning session. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Jermaine. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we dive into the rehabbing of a hamstring injury. So we have a hypothetical athlete. Jermaine takes us through his philosophy, how he integrates benchmarking, testing, exercise progressions, exercise regressions, etc, etc. So a really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end -end experience by collaborating with organizations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And now back to the episode with Jermaine. I've just got down here disguised running and I know it'd be nice to have a whiteboard and some some magnets and things to move people around and, and, sh and show us visually but is there any particular drills that you've you could use as an example where you're able to get the outcome that you want from a like you say a physiological point of view but you're actually incorporating that into the 
with into a football scenario, whether it's finishing off with a header, finish, finishing off with a shot, finishing off with some sort of action that makes the player go, I'm a footballer, I'm not, I'm not a runner. Is there anything that you can describe that maybe you've used to good effect? Yeah, well, well today, uh, today's example, we wanted to um, achieve a specific target from a high-speed running point of view. So we had, um, you know, if you, if you think, you know, you're two wingers, Everyone was standing on the halfway line. So you have two wingers on the halfway line, uh, two central defenders, and then three other players, uh, two other players in the middle. So you get the ball passed as far into the corner as possible. And, and then everyone attacks the 16. So it becomes a 4 free, ball, 4v3 overload. So the guy that has to run towards the ball in the corner, he can be defended so you've got two players which are going to come together. So it's a race to the ball. And then once you get there, can you get the cross in? And then finish in action. And then, okay, foot goes off the gas. And then we play two or three other balls in. And then work on your finishing. Walk back to halfway line, recover. And then we just have rotations. So everyone's getting, okay, from midline to 16, which is, say, yeah, 35 meters. Everyone's going to get an extended acceleration, uh, reaching some uh, max velocity within that, and then recover and then go again. And depending on what your goal is is within the session of how many uh, high-speed running meters you want to achieve relative to, to game demands, it will vary between player, whether that's uh, 10 actions, 12 actions, 8 actions, 6. Um, so yeah, and then reporting back, looking at the data, it was, so today we've done, uh, on, on average, 10 actions and of that seven uh well what we what we um seven of the 10 were in in the zone we could say and and we achieved um or just below of what we want we, we set out before we went out if conditioning versus exposure and they may come obviously come together but if conditioning was the aim versus exposure for hamstring health and all that kind of stuff. Would you ever do anything, just no ball, look, lads, This just got to get this done, and you do like non-football-related conditioning? From a, from a conditioning point of view? Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, In season, I mean. Yeah, it's, it's not going to be every time you bring out the ball because, um, you know, players are smart enough to know, yeah, you're just making us run with a ball. So however you try to dress it up, um, players are smart enough to know. But... Of course, you're uh, going to have to do your uh, box to boxes, or, or we have a, a specific set of runs, um, so uh, 60 meter runs, uh, which you know box to box or 60 meters, but some speed exposure, some some sprint endurance. Um, so doing this with short rest periods, and then really getting into the capacity standpoint. So um, of course, it's you can say a little bit age specific to what you would do within a game doing, uh, say for example, 300 meters of high speed running within a four minute period. But if you can cope with these demands, what you're going to do within a game will be, you know, relatively easy or somewhat manageable to cope with. Do you use anything like MAS? No, not, not, not at this point in time, not at this point in time. So there's, there's, Every season, we, we as a staff come together and we look at our processes. Okay, what uh, can we look at going into uh, next season? Is there anything we need to improve? Anything we need to take away? So there's always a a review, uh, but at this point in time, there's no uh, uh, mass or anaerobic reserve. Uh, 
all these type of things uh, in place. Last question on this. Does the manager or any of his staff have particular runs that they're used to do as a player or they've done over various different seasons with different squads, different players that they have benchmarks for that they say, Jermaine, this is this is my number one run and I can come out, I can see how people are performing or we can get a time and we can see where people are at. Yeah. Do they have those? Not. They, unfortunately, they don't exist. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I've, and you know, throughout my four years or three, just over three and a half years at the club, I've not uh, had a coach um, that's imposed that uh, upon us. You know, at our, our club philosophy is, you know, the, the physical department, whether it's first team or youth, um, we actually have quite a strong voice in terms of and and a, a huge amount of input from a physical point of view. I think maybe it's that Raymond behind and you know the Dutch and having a, a good understanding between uh, technical, tactical, physical, and that blended learning. And so the, a lot of the Dutch, they see the physical department or the physical coaches as the experts. So we lean on you, you know, but of course the coaches have their own drills that what they want to see from a, um, um, we call it Omstrakling, it's a, yeah, Axel Diesel, uh, or high-speed running. Okay, this provokes this or I love using this rule to get everyone to go, you know, full gas and press, you know, or putting it imposing a shot clock. So yeah, whether they impose a shot clock to drive the intensity within the game, because coaches are very good at, at seeing or recognizing what they want from their experiences, albeit from a player, um, if you played at specific levels, or from a, an outpoint point of view. So. Every day there's going to be meetings with regards to, okay, did we achieve what we set out in the drill? Okay, this one's great. I banked this. Or, okay, wasn't really what I was looking for or how good I thought it was. What can I do to make it a little bit more intense? But they're always going to have their favorite drills on a, on a conditioning day that we say, okay, I want to push this. And then, okay, manipulate the time and the variables to get that. But specific running drills, it's not, um, yeah, not like four laps around the pitch in four minutes that has to be done or we go again or runs of seen as, as, as punishment, you know, but I suppose one of my, one of my experiences to, to caveat that is when I started, uh, one of the coaches was used to, um, every Monday 5k run in the woods. So we have the, you know, we're in the middle of the woods uh, 5k run in the woods and then footballing session would start just to purely get some volume um, so when I worked with this particular coach it was okay I want to do the 5k run in the woods and then we come out onto the pitch so you know I just asked uh, the reason the rationale and that actually came from a physical coach prior um, but I said you know for me I'd rather get in the footballing form and maybe disguise it and, you know, get you on the pitch and do some specifics. But time is precious. We were in youth football at the time. So let's use the, the time a little bit more more wisely and get you time on the balls to develop the players in, a, in another way. And it was very receptive to that. And that's that's what we moved on with. But and I do know culturally at some clubs and some organisations, there is um, head coaches which have full full run of the programme. You know, from 
physical uh, and technical and you know even assistants don't have a say in what goes on it's yeah this is what we're doing this is how we're going to do it um you know but there's i suppose there's two sides to the coin because sometimes you might get physical coaches who um have yeah i won't say a little bit narcissistic and overinflate the importance of their role so we're going to do all runs because they seem to be doing something and the other side of the coin you get coaches who just want to you know run guys into the ground you know and it's it's you know two names come to mind uh you know Conte at the Tottenham at the preseason when guys were just absolutely uh plastered onto the floor couldn't get up um Recent reports saying that they were doing 2K runs before a match day. And, you know, whether there's any truth in that. And Jürgen Klingsmann and the national team in the USA get everyone doing a 25-minute run before breakfast because that's what he did when he won the World Cup. So you're always going to get those, you know, old-school beliefs that come into play. Uh, what worked for me is going to work for you. But times are changing. Um Definitely into a more football periodization or tactical periodization model, and even even to the point where UEFA now they have um, you know specific guidelines that if you're doing your coaching badges, you have to take undertake some physical elements. So you have more of an awareness. So I do see in the next on the next generation of coaches, it's going to be less of the old school runs that are in a little bit more sound and scientific because the, the practitioner. You know, whether it's SNC or sports science, is having more influence on these runs. It's more of the, the old school traditional coaches that still kind of have that in place, but I do see it will die out slowly but surely. Nice, mate. Right, 10 to 15 minutes left, and I want to concentrate, maybe go back to where we started, which is the rehab side of things, and give people an insight into your process of, of rehabbing a hamstring, which, again, whether SNC coaches out there listening are, are in that position now. Um, if they're not, there will be at some point because they'll be crowbarred into some part of this process. So would you just give your thought process on your kind of philosophy around dealing with hamstrings and then we'll go through a kind of day-by-day, week-by-week look into it? Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Um, of course, it, firstly, it depends on the, the injury itself. Is it a grade one, grade two, grade three? Is it proximal, distal? Um, is it in the muscle belly? or within the tendon, um, is it a re-injury, is it the same site, um, estimated return to play uh, timelines, and the, so you're always going to split your, your rehab up into phases. So for me, I'd always program the sat-nav first, so starting from the end and then working back, rather than just being, okay, you're in the acute phase and then managing it day by day so you can have a loose uh, framework of course the um, you cannot talk about rehab without mentioning Matt Tabernard and some of the fantastic work that he's another done. one that's the only time you mentioned him on here <laughs> yeah, the, the, the brilliant work that he's done with the control chaos continuum so that's something I do um, use and it's a, it's a process which, you know, even as a club, everyone knows, you know, the CCC continuum and, you know, what it means. Uh, so always starting with the end in mind, program the sat-nav. So even from, uh, okay, the, ex, the end criteria is return to play, return to performance. So if we're looking from a, a testing standpoint, you're going to want 
all your guys or the guys that are in the rehab setting to be minimum at baseline uh, in comparison to a contralateral limb. You want to expose them to max velocity in multi-directional chaos, uh, um, high-end magnitude and density of axels and D-cells through the full range of the clock, whether that's 45, um, uh, 90, 135, 180 degrees, uh, curve linear running, various uh, start and end positions. So that's if that's crudely with the end in mind, uh, okay, to map that and start at the beginning, okay, you enter into your protection phase where it's predominantly physio-led. It's looking at, okay, the tissue healing strategies. And then, you know, for, from my perspective, it's, okay, how early can I get involved in that rehab process? And that is entirely dependent on uh, the practitioner. Um, and again, it will come down to staff and size, injury uh, to rehab ratio, uh, the experience of the physio, competence, um, ego is within that, and of course, trust. So if we know all of these things, um, you know, I've, I've sometimes been involved in a rehab process from day one, and there's been times where I haven't been in a rehab process until the player touches the field. So having those good those good links between departments and you know developing good relationships does make it easier to take the player through the whole process. So uh, if we're looking at from a from an exercise point of view, it's making sure. Or sorry, from a uh, in the protection phase point of view, it's can I ensure what can they do? So we work in possibilities. What can the athlete do? Uh, we want to readdress their nutritional intake. We want to um, set them up with an off-beat conditioning program to make sure there's no uh, decrements in performance and can we train the other limb so they're the primary questions which I'm going to be asking and, and the process in which I'm going to get put in place uh, rehab is predominantly going to be initiated with um, like I said the, the physio taking uh, doing your divers your extenders your bridges your isometric type work and, and if, for me as soon as you can be at a level where you can deliver some isometric strength I'm going to assess I'm going to assess that muscle and see how much force you can produce in comparison to the other limb. So it might not be you go 100%, of course, um, but even if you're only delivering 20% and that's what you feel comfortable delivering, that's okay. And then we'll track that throughout rehab, looking at your, uh, your net peak force and time to contraction and, and some other variables so we can see when that starts to stabilize and if the, the phase and the exit criteria that we're setting, is it in line with what we want to be able to progress. Because the ultimate goal is to bring you back in the fastest yet safest possible way, you know, with minimal chance of reoccurrence. Um, so initiate um, within the gym. So the yeah, protection, primary healing, uh, nutritional strategies, making sure we can develop um, other, other, other limbs and, you know, energy system development in a way that's, not going to hurt or, or affect the other limb. Then we go into um, load introduction, so where we introduce you to key movement patterns. So from here, going through a little bit more uh, extensive type work, more more strength type endurance work, and then you know can we work squat patterns, hinge patterns, and go through this and. 
still continuing with some isometric type work, but are we changing lever lengths? Are we changing time under tension? Uh, are we going from bilateral to unilateral? So all these things are going through your mind to, okay, how can we get uh, you know, the most optimal uh, rehab going on? And then progressing that into um, strength uh, development phase where we increase uh, the variables to make it you know, either more load or increase complexity. Uh, definitely going into more and more unilateral type training and then uh, again measuring strength throughout this uh, and then eventually going into training integration and return to play and ensuring that you like I said earlier going through the full continuum of reactive strength maximum speed exposure but everything is going to be progressed in a nice sequential manner that we're not missing out on any any blocks of, of, of work so your running continuum you know once you're gonna, i'm going to work from a, a long to short type of approach so on the field okay you might do field lengths at you know a speed that you may feel comfortable we might put the restrictions in place so you might run at 40 percent of maximum speed okay that goes well can we progress that to 50 60 and so forth before we start to get into the more uh, speed endurance type work and then eventually bring you into a phase where uh, speed goes up so the intensity goes up but the volume comes down and then once you're at the end stage the volume can can go up as well as intensity so how are you tracking just tell us how you're tracking strength through that this process i know you mentioned a few metrics there as well yeah so tracking strength uh, so predominantly using a, a mccall test so that, that's how I initiate my uh, the isometric type work, looking at both 90 degrees and 30 degrees from uh, full extension. So, yeah, once, you, once you've um, done this test on, you know, we'd have your baseline or using the other limb as a, as a reference point and then, you know, track that throughout the rehab to, to ensure that one, you're looking at the asymmetry value, but two, the relationship between uh, high speed running and uh, your raw your raw scores you know so are, are you adequately prepared to to go out and to your run so we i wouldn't expose you to max sprinting until your um your peak force your net peak force was within um 10 15 percent and but it's more that early rate of force that early rate of force development so uh net peak force at 100 milliseconds so those Contraction times are linked to uh, top end uh, running foot contacts. So if we've got huge asymmetries in muscle force, depending on the muscle group at, for example, bicep fem, and you've got huge asymmetries in contraction times in early rate of force development, there's no way that I'm going to let you sprint. Once, because I've seen, you know, from from testing and from screening players that you can get that down to an acceptable limit where it's sub 10%. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to push that. And once I feel at a comfortable level, as well as it's not just a number on the, on, on the force plate, but as well as seeing you out on the pitch, how you're moving, do you have good lumbar pelvic hip control? Are, do you have good front side and backside mechanics? And do I feel confident enough to expose you to what is deemed highest risk by asking you to sprint maximally? If I've got good lumbar pelvic hip control, I've got, you know, developed 
uh, front and backside mechanics, whichever one they needed to work on. I'm confident that force, uh, both mean and peak, has good symmetry levels, and early rate of force development slash contraction times are good, then it's a green light for me. How early would you expose, I mean, again, it depends on so many things, but how early would you predominantly introduce like high intensity eccentrics that would be pretty early i know there was like jack hickey was did some work in this particular area yeah i would go so after after the eccentric uh, isometric phase in that protection phase i would uh, once you start to introduce it to load it's okay you might do a, a single leg eccentric slider so work, working on that so getting that eccentric strength and if if that's okay then okay i can i can progress um volume on that and then it can start to in, in increase complexity as well but ultimately the the end goal is to start doing some uh, you know so if we're looking from an, on an isometric continuum you might be do a long lever uh, bridge on the floor bilateral so that's like an entry point but the other end of the spectrum i mean you should be doing some quasi isometrics where you're you know in single leg positions doing some boss iso switches um, some med ball throws in these extended positions so um as as well as doing some swiss ball hamstring tantrums uh prone kickers so that high uh, velocity eccentric concentric type work so if i know that's my end point in a, in a gym point of view and i've got my start point it's just following a continuum to make sure that it's uh, yeah seamless transition sounds good well, I, I, I promise you, I could ask you so many more questions about this process, but I'm just conscious of time, and I, I, I promise to keep you keep you well under an hour, which is definitely what I'm going to do. And that's a that's a constraint that I've put on this, by the way, rather than you, because I don't want to completely kill your evening. Um, but I know you said you put stuff on LinkedIn, which is great, and I've noticed that, and some really good stuff, and some good interaction as well, which I think is important, rather than just shoving stuff out there and letting it simmer and letting it go it's answering questions and things like that which i think is brilliant but is there any other platforms that people can get you on if they want to dive into any of the stuff that we've talked about today yeah the the i i also have a a, a twitter but to be honest i'm most active now on okay. on linkedin any most any reason hmm. no no just not not really just, I, I suppose yeah the both as uh from uh as professionals one other i I stopped using Twitter because uh, the okay Bishop Bishop yeah, it was Bishop on it. No, yeah, the, I, I, you feel constrained by the amount now. Now everything is threads, right? Uh, but before, yeah, I stopped using it when you only had X amount of uh, sentences that you can use. Whereas, yeah, to get into the nuts and bolts and you want to create a little bit more discussion and content, then yeah, LinkedIn was a bit, bit more of a, a free flowing platform. Nice, mate. So if people want to get you, LinkedIn is the place to be. Okay, mate. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on at relatively sharp notice as well and uh, being open and honest about the stuff that's going on over there. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. It was an absolute delight to get Jermaine on, have a little chat around the hybrid SNC coach, but also have a discussion about conditioning and the rehabilitation of a hamstring injury as well. So big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, 
play kitman labs and rewire fitness for sponsoring this episode today the podcast could not run in its current form without these guys so i really do appreciate all their support big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next week